Thank you uh, very much, Martin. Well, I need to begin with a small apology. Anne was quite right. I'd, uh, before going on holiday, I'd asked that the reading tonight be from, uh, Math, uh, from Malachi chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 15. But then when I got to preparing, I completely forgot that. And I've prepared on the whole of Malachi. I'm very sorry. Um, I promise not to let it happen again. Uh, but anyway, if you'd... Uh, well, in a moment, we can uh, turn to it. But I thought, well, uh, I've got one kind of intro planned. But I thought in, the way, in light of the way that uh, Ben introduced the service, I thought I'd play the same game, really, to get us in. Um, so three things um, that connect to me, uh, and you can decide uh, which one is false. Uh, firstly, um, I was brought up in Germany. Uh, Secondly, uh, I've been uh, paragliding a couple of times. Uh, And thirdly, I used to live in Belgium, not far from Waterloo, where at the famous battle, General John Sedgwick said, and they were his final words, they couldn't hit an elephant at this dist. Two of those are true, one of those is false. Um, So uh, let's say, put your hands up if you think think I was not brought up in Germany. Thank you. Put your hands up if you think I've not been paragliding twice. And put your hands up if uh, those, if, if that third bit about John Sedgwick was not the case. Thank you. Actually, I was brought up in Germany uh, from, the, from between about the ages of three and seven. Uh, I, my father was attached to the forces and I was brought up in Germany. Uh, I have been paragliding a couple of times. Um, but those, those words were the last words of General John Sedgwick, but he was the most senior general killed in the American Civil War and never went anywhere near Waterloo. But that's all by way of getting us. <laughs> Ben's complaining that's not the way the game should be played. I'm sorry. It's two apologies, and I haven't even started yet. Um, uh, Malachi is the last words of the Old Testament. So do please turn to it. It's on page 961 and 2. Um, now on page uh, 962 just in chapter 4 and verse 5 you'll see a reference to the great and dreadful day of the Lord that's coming Uh, well uh, up to now when a prophet of God has spoken about the great and terrible day of the Lord it's meant the arrival of the armies from the east that would take them off to exile and to scattering and destruction. But that's already behind them. This is the uh, last book of the Old Testament. These are the last words of what we call the Old Testament. Um, But uh, the period is the period of kind of Ezra, Nehemiah, the temple has been rebuilt, 
Um, There is worship going on now of a kind in the temple, and everything's just sort of chugging along, really. We'll come to more detail uh, about that. Up to now, when a prophet has said, the great and terrible day is coming, it's meant uh, military destruction. But that's already behind them. So what does it mean now? Well, it's something else. We are reaching out beyond even that. And three times, at least in chapter 3, we get this notion of the day is coming, the day is coming, the day is coming. Something is coming. And there's a kind of, almost like a Jaws-like interlude in the page. What's coming? Well... There are reminders in Malachi, in chapter 3, of the first words, almost, of the Old Testament. If you turn to verse 1 of uh, chapter 3. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. Well, the covenant is about as basic an idea as you get in the Old Testament. It's almost the first word, in that it's the word established with uh, Abraham. And as they reflected on it, they realized there had been a covenant with Noah, too, and there had been a covenant uh, with Adam. It's God's firm and certain unshakable promise that he will be faithful to his people. It gave a solidity to their dealings with God, that they could be certain about, or it should have done. Uh, But of course, the lack of solidity was in their part, not on God's. So they kind of knew he was certain, but they became uncertain about themselves. And then in the same verse, the covenant uh, is mentioned, but you also get the Lord coming uh, to his temple. Well, Ezekiel, Um, had seen the glory of the Lord in a vision depart from Jerusalem, from the temple. And he'd seen in a vision the the Lord's glory coming back to the temple, but that bit had never happened. And they knew that. They were still waiting for the glory of the Lord to come back to his temple, for the Lord to take up occupation again in a temple. How could he, while there was no temple, but now the temple had been rebuilt... But they knew that there was no glory. There was no prophetic word. And even now, at the very end of all things, what all we're getting is the Lord will return, but he hasn't come back yet. So they had something, as they didn't know these were going to be the last words of the Old Testament, but they had something from the very beginning. The covenant is carrying on. It's still there. It's still solid. But there's something still to come about it. They had something from the kind of middle period of Ezekiel, the promises where uh, there will be a glory again in the temple, but it hasn't happened yet. And there's something about the future. The great and terrible day is coming, and we don't know very much about that, or about what they expected it to be, except that it would be a day of judgment, because the big day of judgment had already happened. So, we head next, in verses 2 through to 5, into this stretch about judgment. And in, uh, in Malachi's uh, thinking, as God gives it to him, there's two kinds of people he's addressing. He's addressing those who are responsible for the worship of God, those who are in the temple, the religious establishment, the, the, 
the people who, in whose hands was the business of access to God. So there in verse uh, 3, you get the Levites. Uh, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He'll be like a refiner's fire. He'll sit as a refiner and purify of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. That was their job, to present offerings. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in future years. But then he winds it out from the Levites and goes out to the whole community because he says, I'm going to come near to you for judgment. And this is not now just the Levites. I'm going to be quick to testify against a bunch of people. Only the first of those, the sorcerers, has a problem that you can say is to do with kind of God stuff only. If you think about uh, sin against God, sin against neighbor, only the sorcerers are about God. All the others are sins against neighbor. You've got adultery going on. This is an, uh, this is a, an, uh, an alarmingly acute, sharp, um, terrifying analysis of the social situation in Jerusalem. There's, okay, there's worships going on. But adultery is rampant. Uh, perjury, the, the courts are not delivering justice. There are those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the vulnerable, the widows and the fatherless. Now, do you remember what Martin was praying about at the start of our prayer time? They deprive aliens of justice. Nothing changes. They do all that, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. It's an oracle of judgment. It's not unusual in the prophets to read an oracle of judgment, but this now seems to be definitive, because the day is going to come because of this. And it's, uh, it's, it's basic to their character. It is coming. I am coming near to you. At this point, there's no ray of sunshine in the darkness. And the heart of it comes in that next verse. I, the Lord, do not change. I let myself be known to you at the very beginning uh, as the covenant-making God. I made this promise that I would be faithful to you. I have been faithful to you. I remain faithful to you. I do not change. But you are sons of Jacob. Unusual to get that word. By now you'd normally hear the word Israel, which was his other name. But Jacob was the great cheater. Do you remember the story of Esau and Jacob? How Jacob cheated his brother out of the birthright? You are sons of Jacob. You don't change either. Your heart from the very beginning has been cheating and that's why these sins, these social sins and spiritual sins belong with you. I do not change, and you've changed every moment, every blink of an eye, you've changed. I've been faithful, you are characteristically and consistently unfaithful. Even though you are sons, descendants of Jacob, because I, the Lord, do not change, you are not yet destroyed. That's what verse 1, sorry, verse 6 is saying. I, the Lord, don't change, So you, because I don't change, O descendants of Jacob the cheater, are not destroyed, even though you should be. 
because of your unfaithfulness. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Now, how can we characterize what follows? Because they have two things to say back to God. They say, how do we return? Um, It's about robbery. But you ask, verse 8, how do we rob you? And then yet you ask, verse 13, what have we said against you? Now, these are really serious accusations. But it's not easy to remember. This is the last in the series of all these minor prophets. And by now, if you've been a regular, you may be up to here with uh, the minor prophets. So I'll take any help I can get to help to help you remember what's in the, the structure of the text. So I want to introduce you to two characters that may just help you remember those two questions. Richard, could we have them, please? Um, these are Menian and Monian. Um, they're, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of fun, but if a matter of fun can help us remember the text, I'll take it. You see, that the first issue is that they are mean. The second issue is that they moan. And it's as good a way as any I could think of of just... Thank you, Adam. Adam's nodding. Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, I get my communication points, thank you. Um, uh, it'll do. How do, we ro- how do we robbing you, they say, and God says, you are robbing me of your tithes. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse. Now, just as before, there's something about the Levites and there's something about everyone. Here, swatch round, first of all, we deal with everyone, and then we're going to deal with the Levites. The first charge is against everyone. Everyone is approaching God with contempt. The rule of God was simple. You brought the tithes, your tenth of your produce, your capital, to God, and that fed the priests and the Levites. Um, And they're not doing it. Now, beyond the tithe, there was lots of other giving you could engage in, free will offerings. And God clearly isn't even going to go there. There's no free will offerings coming in. You're not giving the tithes. Now, for us, this is the Old Testament, for us, uh, much as I would love to stand up and say, uh, every time we talk about giving, uh, please tithe, and I know lots of Christian churches that do, but I always feel that if I say please tithe, I've got to stop you having prawns because they're all part of the Old Testament law. I like prawns, um, uh, and I don't want to have to say give up prawns, so I don't really feel that I can command the Old Testament law upon you. Um, However, um, uh, there is something here about giving and generosity. And it occurs to me that generosity is something you can't fake. You can come into church with a smile on your face and say that everything's fine, You can live an immoral life during the week and come into church and look like everything's fine. But once you've put a hundred quid in that, in that plate, you can't kind of take it back. Because we won't give it back. Generosity of heart in giving is not something you can fake. So this is a real indication. It's not just that there was a law and they weren't fulfilling it. It's that they did not have the generosity of heart to want to fulfill it. They were being essentially mean. They were saying, well, okay, fine, let let the Levites and priests get on with it, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep them on grudging rations. It's unacceptable behavior. Now, I was trying to think, okay, there is something there about giving, I'm sure, for our own, our own day. But I was thinking, 
is that what God's charge against his people would be now? And I thought, well, pro- I don't think it, it, it would be universally. Because if there was an idolatry around money then, and, and the language of the social ills they're suffering from is mostly about material things. If that was the problem then, I would venture to suggest that it's much more likely around today to be around an idolatry of sex. Because effectively, what they were saying in the money issue was, how, how little can we, how much can we get away with? And that seems to me almost precisely the question that I get asked time and time again when, uh, uh, well, uh, uh, Will, when did you last have to do the relationship talk at camp? Quite recently. Well, ask, ask Will. He knows all about having to give the relationship talk. Because every person who's had to give the relationship talk knows that the question you're constantly getting asked is, how far can you go? And the question, how far can you go, is really, what will God allow me to get away with? And the moment you've asked that question, you're asking the same question that they were asking in their day. Instead of asking the question, what would please God? What would please God in my giving? What would please God in my purity? That's the question that unites their day and ours. What would please God instead of what can I get away with? That's what they were asking. What can I get away with so I don't have to give the full tithes? So that's the Menian. Let's say something about the Monian. Uh, there's, there's language in here, which doesn't come through quite so clearly in, in the English translations, that suggests it's about the running of public worship. So, verse 13, you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. And there's a technical sense to that, the, the service of God. What, do we get, what did we gain by carrying out his requirements? Again, there's a technical sense, the, the requirements in worship. And going about like sinners before the Lord, going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty. But now we call the arrogant blessed. This sounds like the Levites complaining, because they're not getting much money, remember. Um, But look out there, God. The arrogant are getting away with it. The evildoers are prospering. Those who challenge God escape. They're moaning because it does not seem to them that God is real and active. God is supposed to be favourable to us, they say. Well, of course, we can, in our day, merge Levites and everyone else because we don't have special castes of people. Um, All can uh, lead worship if called locally. And all of us can notice that evil prospers in our day. It always has, of course. So it's easy for all of us to moan and say, what's the point? What's the point in living differently if we see the arrogant apparently being blessed, we see evil prospering, and again, some of our prayers touched on that. Well, God says there is going to be a a dividing Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. Presumably this isn't a separate group again. This is just those who've heard what has been said. And the Lord listened and heard them. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. They will be mine, says the Lord, in the day when I make make up my treasured possession, I will spare them. Well, there's a scroll and there's a treasured possession. There is that dividing line being prepared. Well, okay, that's the rough text.
And perhaps because it is the end of this series on the Minor Prophets, it seems to me there's one thing worth saying, because they've all been addressed to God's people. Very rarely are they addressed to the outsiders, occasionally. But they're mostly addressed to God's people who are wandering away from him and who need uh, a a bit of a poke uh, to return to him. And it seems to me that each one of these minor prophets, sets up, and indeed the bigger prophets before them, sets up the same kind of question, which is this. God, is this fair? You are moaning about your people. Well, are we in or are we out? Come on, God, shape up. Explain yourself. You keep saying that you're faithful by the covenant. Well, that means we're in. Then you keep moaning at us because we haven't been faithful to the covenant ourselves and you keep threatening judgment, which suggests we're out. Well, are we in or are we out? Have we got one foot here, one foot there? What are we supposed to do? Nearly every single prophet puts that challenge in front of us. God's faithfulness, our unfaithfulness, who's going to win? I sometimes put it in terms of that daisy that you you may once have picked. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me. Who's going to win? Where's the last daisy going to be? God's faithfulness or your unfaithfulness? Uh, But it seemed to me that there is this danger with Scripture as a whole, but certainly here, that we seek, if I can put it like this, to understand it. In other words, to grasp it as an intellectual whole that enables us to say, ah, yes, now I understand. I've got the answer to this. Whereas, in fact, the challenge is not for us to understand this, but that we should stand under this. Let me explain that a bit more. Um, If you look at verses 5 here, I'll come near to you for judgment. And verse 15, uh, we call the arrogant blessed, certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Something so bad is about to happen that there's going to be a terrible judgment. But then there's also those who feared the Lord talked with each other, the Lord listened and heard, and and sort of nice things happened. And then verse 18, you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Which am I in? Which are you in? If you're listening properly, that should be your question. Are you going to be on that scroll or not? It's the question that is raised in the last book of the Old Testament. Of course, there's an answer that has something to do with the scroll in the last book of the New Testament as well, but you can find that out yourselves. There's an intellectual problem here. Why is it this way and not that? And there are similar arguments. After all, if the New Testament is true, for example, then all have sinned. So how can this distinction be preserved between the wicked and the righteous? in verse 18 here. God, make your mind up. Either your people, including me, are okay, or we are not. It's the same with all the prophets. There's judgment and there's mercy, but the outcome for each one of us, individually, seems unpredictable. I don't understand. But that's because we're trying to, as it were, stand above it and say, I want to make a judgment about what's going on here. I want to make a judgment about how this works out, about the kind of game plan that God has got. 
It's not an appreciation according to our intellect that we need, though. Not to understand, but to stand under, which is an appreciation according to our will. We have to stand under these words and let them come to us as an address from God. Um, I'm not sure how you're going to react to this story. I think you'll probably worry about me, but you can tell me about that later. Um, uh, this may be appreciated by Simon, um, who's, I think, the only dentist in tonight. Um, I don't know what you think about the quality of magazines at your dentist. Um, uh, when I was growing up, uh, there, were, there were always magazines for children at the dentist's. And... Um, it was the only time in my life that I got to see Jackie magazine. Um, there were magazines for people like me, sort of, you know, 13-year-olds who wanted to know how rockets worked and important things. But then there was also this magazine called Jackie, which was for women, uh, for young girls about the same age as me. And instead of being interested in things like rockets and cars and engines, these magazines appeared to be interested in relationships. That was foreign territory for me. I just wanted to know about rockets and engines. Uh, and the, um, but I also wanted to know how girls worked, so I always used to turn to the problem pages of Jackie magazine when I went to the dentist. And um, uh, there would be kind of, what do I do about? Well, this is um, the sort of thing I, I'm kind of getting at. What would we think of the uh, girl whose boyfriend was 15 minutes late for their first date? That was the sort of thing that you got in, in Jackie magazine. And the girlfriend responded by saying, it's off forever. Never going to see him again. Never going to see him. Well, I haven't seen him at all yet. It was a first date. I've written him off after 15 minutes. Well, we might have one uh, reaction. Or uh, a different scenario. What would we think if we hear that uh, in another story, the girl went off with another guy uh, for an evening, and although it was the 20th time this had happened, he forgave her again. Well, we would think that both of those stories were entirely unreasonable. They kind of break the social code, and that's what the advice would always be, you know, kind of stick with the code. But that wouldn't necessarily be how it seemed to people inside the relationship. So reading the magazine and, and, and dealing with anything like that relational stuff, it, it's not like dealing with rockets and engines where one intellectual solution applies to all. We know that in relationships, things seem different if you're actually inside the relationship. And after all, most of us have been involved in some kind of conversation around a relationship with a friend in which either we ourselves or the other person has said, oh, but you don't get it. He, she, really is wonderful deep down. And we suddenly realize that we've got nothing to contribute to that conversation because it's going to run according to what the other, the other person thinks. Inside the relationship, we are addressed differently from if we try and understand the whole thing in some objective kind of way. And I think that leaves us with the challenge that's there in verse 6. God does not change, but we are always changing. 
And it is we who are addressed inside the relationship. So it's not going to make a lot of sense. So I'm distracted. I've just seen a double-decker bus go down uh, Trinity Street. Double-decker buses don't go down Trinity Street. It's not allowed, but this week it is, and they're very distracting. Um, If I see one going the other way, then we'll have some fun. Um, uh, Verse 6 says, I do not change, but we are always changing. We're not going to understand it if we try to, to stand outside and say, ah, oh, yes, this is how it all fits together. The only way these, cha- these uh, books work is, by, is if we let ourselves be addressed. If we hear verse 6 for ourselves and yes, say, yes, I too am like that. I am one who is unfaithful. It is not something that our mind... God is not something our minds can grasp. We have to stand under his word and let him grasp us. And that's the connection to the next page. The first name to appear over the page after Jesus Christ and David is Abraham. We're straight back with the beginning, the covenant promise, the address to Abraham I am going to make my covenant with you, and I will be faithful. Even when you're not, and he wasn't. And that sets up the tension illustrated in the story of Abraham, and it runs all the way through to Malachi. And it runs still all the way through to beyond Jesus. There is covenant, then there is failure, then there is exile, then there is restoration. Then we skip that blank page, and then we get the messenger, the redemption, the spirit, So that the themes of temple, which we've touched on, are sorted out. God does come to his temple. And what does he do? He overturns the tables of the money changers. Themes of sonship are sorted out. Verse, uh, where's it gone? Verse 17, I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. The difference is that what the Old Testament urged, the New Testament has made possible. uh, Ben chose as our affirmation of faith the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians 15. And if that's true, if Jesus has died on that cross, risen on the third day, and been raised to the glory of God, then everything that Malachi has been looking for has come to pass. We have had the judgment of God as Jesus comes and faces his people again and again with judgment and we're still living in that judgment as people react to it maybe some tonight and say either yes I receive that I know I'm unfaithful I've got to do something about it and I repent or hearts are hearts are hardened and we say yeah I get it but I'm not going to do anything about it we now read what follows this new testament from the perspective of those who, with the sure and certain confidence of those who are truly God's sons and daughters, per verse 17 of this text now, we are heirs of God. We can be summoned to ever fuller-hearted response. We are indeed children of the promise, as we've sung. And it can still be illustrated by uh, Menian and Monian. Can we pop them up again? Oh, and that's, that's the wholehearted response beyond Menian and Monian. It's impossible to fake generosity. It's also impossible to fake hope. You can do lots of things, but you can't fake hope. But a wholehearted response will be generous and hopeful. 
There are some here this evening, I guess, who will face the claims of God for the first time. I actually think this is mostly for those facing the claims of God for the umpteenth time. Wholeheartedness is the response to any relational issue. It's true for children's magazines, but it's true in Scripture too. Wholeheartedness is what is looked for. And it may be that, in a sense, we're living in Malachi, that we're, we're kind of nominal. If things are okay, but we're, we know in our hearts we're a bit mean, we're a bit inclined to moan. And God says, no, enough of the drift. Let's sort out the nominalism that's inside your heart. It's one of the great benefits of summer, isn't it? Some of you will have been on camps, some at Keswick, some at New Wines, some at Soul Survivor. I've seen a badge from uh, uh, Jemima of uh, New Day. Well, yes, examine your giving to see whether your heart is engaged. Examine your purity to see whether your heart is engaged. Examine your worldview, perhaps in your prayer life, to see whether you actually think God's heart is engaged in this life that you live. There's a terrible penalty if not, and a wonderful delight if there is. It's the word of God. At one level we understand it, but it's much more important that we stand under it. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you do not change, you never have. You've always been the same, God. You're holy and loving. You are righteous and merciful. You always have been. We repent of those parts of our lives that have been lived in drift and in less than wholeheartedness. Give us the hearts to stand under your word and to rejoice in your address to us, meeting that call with a wholehearted following.